while they receive the offering, you can pull out your Bibles. Uh, we are going to bounce around a little bit this morning. Um, this morning, I, I want to uh, answer a question. I, I, I found the text that I wanted to preach on Easter months ago. Months ago. I was like, this is the text. This is what I want to preach on. This is going to be great. I can't wait. But then as I began to prepare this sermon, I realized, oh, this is going to be heavy. Uh, this is going to be a little intense. This is going to be a little weighty. This is going to be a little, this is going to require us to do a little bit of extra work this morning. Um, and, and so I hope that uh, you all are ready for that, right? You guys look sharp, right? You got up early. You got your coffee. You dress good, you look good, right? You guys are smart, we can handle this, right? And so we're going we're gonna to do a little extra work this morning. I want to answer a question, I think an incredibly important question that every follower of Jesus should know the answer to, right? But very few actually know it. Simple question. Why did Jesus come and die and raise again? What is the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason why Jesus came and died and rose again? Now, in your mind, you don't have to answer it out loud, but in your mind, just come up with the answer to that question. The reality of most of us in the room, right, many, many of us in the room probably come up with, with answers like um, for salvation, right? That's a, that's a common one. That's a common answer, right? For our salvation. No. Now, before you walk out of here thinking, this guy's a heretic. Yes, he did come for our salvation, but my question is, what is the ultimate reason? Your salvation is a means to the ultimate reason. Y yes, his work on the cross and his resurrection saves us, but that is a means to the ultimate reason that Jesus came and died and rose again. Some of you might say, because he loves us. We sang about his love this morning, right? Some of you are like, I know the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. There's the answer, Josh. No. But it's in the Bible. No, his ultimate reason, yes, God loves you. Listen to me. If you doubt that here this morning, let me tell you something. God ferociously is passionate for you. He loves you. He absolutely loves you. But that is not the ultimate reason why he came and died and rose again. The reason Christ came and died and rose again is the same reason that God has done everything that God has ever done in the history of all things. In all eternity, God has done everything for the same ultimate end. It is the reason why he delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It is the reason why they, why they walked across uh, the, the dry ground of the sea and were led into the promised land. It is, it is the reason why um, God gave uh, the little boy David, he gave him strength to defeat the great warrior Goliath. It is the reason he raised him up to be king. It is the reason why... He gave uh, Jonah over to the fish, and the fish gave Jonah back to, onto the beach and gave them back to Nineveh. It is the same reason why uh, he, he closed the mouth of the lions and delivered Daniel from the lions in. It's the same reason why he gave the prophets to the nation of Israel. It's the same reason why Christ made the lame to walk and gave sight to the blind. The reason why God has done all things that God has ever done for all time is the same. It's the reason why he created the world for his glory. For his glory. God has done all things for his glory. The great theologian, one of the greatest theologians who has ever lived, Jonathan Edwards, said it this way. 
His ultimate goal in creating the world is to show you, is to show supreme honor and respect to himself. He later goes on to say, creation provides a forum for other beings, that's you and me, humanity, to see the exertion of God's glorious attributes. God created all things for his glory. This talk this morning, this sermon has four kind of main pieces that I, that I think we need to understand. If we're going to get to the kind of the fourth one, and this is what I want you to see, why Christ came and died and rose again, we must understand his glory. And so the first thing you must understand is that we were, you were made for his glory. You were made for his glory. Everything he does is for his glory. One of my favorite bands is a band called Sleeping at Last. And my favorite song that they sing is a song called Saturn. And just, just yesterday I was uh, doing some work around the house and I was listening to Sleeping at Last and that song Saturn came on. And the song is it's really interesting. It's, it, the, it portrays Galileo, the astronomer, on his deathbed. And he's speaking to like his grandchild, his grandson or granddaughter. And he's telling the granddaughter of all these kind of wondrous things of the universe. And there's a, there's a line in the song. He says, I would give anything to hear you say it one more time, how the universe was made to be seen by my eyes. You were created for his glory. All things were created for his glory. The universe is on display so that you, humanity, the the crown jewel of his creation, might look upon the stars and the sun and the moon and the galaxies and the solar systems and say, glory to God. That in all things he might find supreme worth, supreme beauty, supreme dignity, and supreme respect, supreme worship in all things. Now some of you might say, but Josh... That can't be in the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. And in verse 6, he says this, God says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons From afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made, bring them forth. The crown jewel of my creation, everyone, every single person who has ever lived, every man, woman, and child, young and old, bring them forth, everyone who I made for my glory. The great theologian Karl Barth, when speaking on the glory of God, Karl Barth described it as this. Karl Barth was a German theologian, mentor of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Barth said, it is the self-revealing sum of all divine perfections is the fullness of God's deity, the emerging, self-expressing, and self-manifesting reality of all that God is. It is God's being so far as this is in itself a being which declares itself. Now, for some of you in the room, you're like, wait, can you read that one more time? All right, I know. Here's what Bart's saying. It's who he is. 
The glory of God is God. Everything he does is glorious. When God does anything, glory. Whenever he shows up, whenever there's, whenever there's any image or picture of him doing anything ever, it is glorious. When God creates, glory. When God shows up and says, hey, I'm over here, glory. God's like, I'm going to make a snail, glorious. Everything he does is glory. Whenever he shows up, it is who he is. Anytime we see any image or even sprinkling of, of what he might be like, it is his glory on display. Everything he has ever done is for his glory. He cannot, it is beyond him to do anything that is not glorious and for his glory. Now, some of you in the room say, Josh, yeah, that is a little narcissistic, all right? It's like a little, a little self-centered I mean, how, how self-serving do you have to be to do everything for yourself? If you think that, you're not alone. The great theologian philosopher Oprah Winfrey had the same thought. When Oprah was uh, in her 20s, Oprah's from Chicago. That's my, that's my hometown. That's where we moved here from. And we lived not far from uh, Oprah. Our place was a little bit smaller than hers. Um, Oprah, when she was in her 20s, she was on the south side of Chicago, and she went to a church on the south side, and uh, the pastor was talking about the glory of God, talking about his, his supreme worth and beauty and majesty, and God said, that, or the pastor said that God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. And, and Oprah said, how could God ever be jealous of little old me? the richest woman who's ever lived, right? Oprah says, man, how could this be possible? How, how, could, how could God be jealous? How could, a, how could an omnipotent, omnipresent, almighty, powerful God be jealous of me? And she said, I left there that day saying, I don't want anything to do with that God. So self-centered, so narcissistic. You see, what Oprah didn't understand is that God is not jealous of her. God is jealous of her lesser glories because those lesser glories are robbing her of her joy. You see, you were created for the glory of God so that you might find supreme worth and beauty, joy and delight in his glory, right? John Piper, the pastor, theologian, in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, kind of famously crafted the phrase and made famous the phrase that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified. He receives the most glory when we find our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate delight in him. We were created and formed and made to find ultimate joy, ultimate delight, ultimate satisfaction in the glory of God. And we find that in the glory of God. We give him more glory. And as he receives more glory, we find more joy and delight and satisfaction. And as we find more joy and delight and satisfaction, we give him more glory. And it's just like this constant, we were designed for this. We were made for this. So God becomes jealous when we, be, when we become dissatisfied, which leads us to our second point. Yes, we were created for the glory of God, yet in our seeking of it, we have fallen from it. In our seeking of it, we have fallen from it. We know the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. They, they were created and formed in the image of God, and they lived in the fullness of His glory. The fullness of the glory of God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. 
all day, every day. They, they, they lived in the glory of God, full joy, full delight, full satisfaction. They, they were created to live out their eternal days fully satisfied. Can you imagine? Until Genesis 3. When the serpent, the most crafty of all, right? The serpent we know from Revelation is, is Satan. The great deceiver comes upon them and, 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 and feeds them a lie. What, what is the lie? Surely you will not die, for God knows that your eyes will be open and you will be what? Like him. You'll be like him. You will be glorious. You'll be glorious. You won't just experience his glory. You will be his glory. That's what he doesn't want you to have. He knows. He knows that, that, if you, if, that if you eat from this tree, you will become like him. You will become glorious. And he doesn't want that for you. Friends, that is the lie that we've been buying into ever since that moment, ever since that day. Every human being who has ever lived has bought into that lie. That you can become like God. And that you can be glorious. Some of us literally believe that, that, that we can actually somehow earn our way to become like God. Let me tell you something. There is one singular God, and everything in your life and in my life declares that we are not him. I will never be like him. I will be with him, but I will never be like him. Everything in my life declares that. I'm so far from him, there's no possible way that I will ever be like him. I will never become God and yet for the rest of us, we pursue that same lie, that same idea that was there in the beginning that we can somehow in shape or form create and build our own glory. We are hungry for it. We thirst for it. In our sinful brokenness, we are all chasing glory. We want glory. We need glory. You are created for it. But in our brokenness, we chase it in one of two ways. We are created to, to give glory to God, but instead in our sinful brokenness, we now give all of our glory to lesser things, less glorious things. We are created to receive goodness from God, but in our sinful brokenness, we crave to receive glory like he receives glory. We want the glory. And the way that we extend glory, we see this all the time. I, I, just think, I don't have to convince you of this. This is, this is your life. We extend glory all the time. In many different ways. I'll give you two. The first one is easy. It's celebrity, right? Think about all the greatest celebrities who have ever, who have ever stepped foot on a stage. Think about how people scream for the Beatles, for Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson. You can get on YouTube and look at the, some old school videos of Michael Jackson. And there are like thousands of people just weeping, just weeping over Michael Jackson. Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber. And every little girl and Jake Noyes loves the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Love you, buddy. It's public knowledge. Just screaming and cheering. Last week, Tiger Woods won his uh, fifth green jacket, which apparently is a big deal. 
I watch it on TV, and I see these people as he, as he kind of walks off the 18th green. Everybody's just, just losing their minds, and all they want to do is just touch him. They're just reaching out, just trying to, to touch him. Like, I just got to touch him. I got I to gotta feel his glory. I got to extend glory to him. And just losing their minds. Listen, the glory of God compared to Tiger Woods' fifth jacket, it, it, Tiger Woods is not even worth like one little golf clap. It's not worth it. It's meaningless. It's insignificant. It's, it's pathetic compared to the glory of God. And yet all the time we are looking for ways to extend glory, to experience glory, to see glory. We do this in nature, which is closer to the glory of God, right? We, we, we long to see and to experience things that make us feel awe, things that make us feel small. Every human being feels this way. Listen, the ultimate evidence is this. Last year, 2018, a census in the United States, there's 272, wait, I'm going to butcher this, ah, 327 million people, 327 million people live in the United States of America as of last year. The previous year, 2017, guess how many people went to national parks, U.S. national parks? 331 million. Millions more people who then live in the United States attended a national park. M- millions more than live here attended one of our national parks. The glory of God. You see, there's something in us that craves that feeling of smallness. If it wasn't created in us, then it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to, to stand in awe of a hole in the ground. It doesn't make any sense to stand in awe of a tree. To look up at the mountains and say, this, this makes my soul come alive. I remember years ago, my wife and I and another couple went to Mexico. And one of the days was kind of this windy, cloudy day. And uh, everybody was inside doing their own thing. And me and my buddy walked down to the beach. And the largest waves I've ever seen were breaking just beyond the beach. These massive waves. And we stood on that beach in silence. Just in awe of what was happening before us. Just unbelievable, looking out in the ocean and just hearing the sound. Incredible. And something in us just craved more of that. And so we waded out into the ocean. And it felt like an hour. It was probably five minutes. We just got pummeled. I mean destroyed. I mean salt water in every orifice of my body being just held underwater and pinned down and coming up and just giggling and laughing because it was just this feeling of smallness. And yet in some way, shape, or form, in this pain and in this discomfort, our souls felt alive. We long to extend glory. We long to give it to God. We long to drive out to the desert in a new moon and gaze up at our Milky Way and say, Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. But we also want to receive glory as well. There's something in all of us that hungers and craves this this sinful desire to to have glory. And so we prop up these, these kind of fake lives, these fake pictures of ourselves, and we say, this is who I genuinely want to be, but this is not who I am. All around us, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, and even ourselves, we prop up this image of ourselves and say, this is who I want to be, but it's not really who I am. We tell everybody this is who I am, but it's not who we are. 
And we spend so much time and so much energy and so much money to create this image. And then when somebody raises an image that's greater than ours, we feel crushed underneath the weight of it. And when somebody raises a glory of their own that is greater than the glory that we have shown, we feel crushed underneath that. Moms, you know what I'm talking about. That woman on Instagram, super duper mom, she got like six kids and somehow they were like perfectly groomed, right? And there's not a hair out of place. She's like, how do you do that, right? And they're all like, they're not matching outfits because that would be weird and that wouldn't receive any glory at all. But they're perfectly coordinating in some beautiful way. You're like, how is that? Like, what did she do there? I can't even figure it out, but it's just, it's just beauty, right? And they're eating her, her like organic kale that she grew in the garden and, 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 and like roasted in the oven and made perfectly. You're like, I can't get my kid to eat anything but some mac and cheese and french fries. And half the time, he's wearing it. How? And we just feel deflated. We feel worthless because our glory is being sucked from us. Fellas, we do the same thing, but it's different, right? We don't feel deflated. We, we like one glory up them, right? That guy posted a thing on, on Instagram. He's like, look at my new job, this new career. Look, look at my, my new office. They have like a rock wall in the office. You're like, I'm starting my own business. You're like, whoa. Some sweet wife like takes a picture of the living room. Look, my husband repainted the living room. You're like, I'm painting the whole house today. You're like, God, what are you doing? All right. Some guy's like, look, I took my kids on this. I surprised my family with this beautiful vacation to Fiji. You're like, I'm taking my kids to the moon. Like, it's like, what is wrong with us? You're going to be, be more glorious than me. We crave, we need, we hunger for glory. My friend J.R. Vassar, some of you have met J.R. He's been here as a preacher before. He wrote a book on this whole idea called Glory Hunger. And in the book, J.R. said this. He says, kind of vulnerably, he says, I sit on trial every day in the court of human opinion craving a positive verdict to be handed down on me from a jury of my peers. I'm constantly stacking up evidence, trying to sway the court to bestow upon me its approval. I argue my case for people's acceptance and appreciation. I look to other people to, for any trace of hope or hint that I'm perceived as important. I'm hungry for recognition, affirmation, applause, and to love, to hear a yes spoken over my life by everyone, sometimes anyone. And I fear hearing a no spoken over my life. With this desire for approval and acceptance comes an accompanying fear of rejection. I despise the thought of being invisible, unappreciated, or unloved. I'm glory hungry. We all are. And we, ever, we have been ever since the beginning when our first parents, Adam and Eve, were placed in the Garden of Eden. We were created for His glory, yes. Yet in our seeking of it, we have fallen from it. We've fallen short. We said, man, I'm going I'm to earn glory. I'm going to become glorious. But in our pathetic attempts for glory, we've fallen short of it. We all know this, right? Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. We've all fallen short of it. There's no, never been anybody who's ever measured up to the glory of God. Isaiah writes about it. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. We have, we have all, every single one of us, every person, we have all become like one who is unclean. 
and our pursuit of this perfection, and all of our righteous deeds, all of our glory, are like filthy, polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. No one rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. No one's measured up. No, no, one's, no one's ever risen to him. No one's ever come to him. No one's ever approached his glory. Isaiah says that when we are at our best, when we're at our most glorious, doing the best things we can, filthy rags, it doesn't compare. It's nowhere near. We, we have never tasted and seen the glory of God. The psalmist in Psalm 24 writes about it this way. He declares the glory of God in verse 1. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He is founded upon the seas and established on the, on the, upon the rivers. You want to know the glory of God? It's all his. I made it. It's mine. It's my glory. And he asked the question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who, who will be glorious? Who will be worthy to walk with him and to join with him? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. Let me tell you something. Verse, verse 4 does not describe you, and it does not describe me. The psalmist is saying, you want to know the glory of the Lord? Look at creation. He's created it all. It is his. And you, if who's going to ascend to that? Who's going to be like that? No one. None of us. Which leads us to the third point. In all of our seeking, we still don't even come close to knowing the glory of God. In all of our seeking, we don't, we don't come close. You don't know the glory of God. Make no mistake, the glory you were made for is not the glory that you know. The glory that you were made to find the fullness of joy and the fullness of delight and the fullness of just, just satisfaction in is not the glory you know. We know nothing of the glory of God. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived, Charles Spurgeon in the 1500s, preached a sermon on the glory of God. And he, he begins with this and I love this. He says, hope not, my brethren, that the preacher can grapple with such a subject. Don't hope in me. I'm the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Don't hope in this. I got nothing. I have nothing for you today. He says, I am overcome by it. In my meditations, I have felt lost in its lengths and breaths. My joy is great in my theme, and yet I'm conscious of the pressure upon my brain and heart. For I am as a little child wandering among the mountains, or as a lone spirit which has lost its way among the stars. I stumble along, sublim and I stumble along sublimity as I sink with amazement. I can only point with my finger to that which I see but cannot describe it. May the Holy Spirit himself take the things of Christ and show them to you. Spurgeon says, man, I am of no use to you. You want to understand the glory of God, don't look at me. Don't look at the greatest preachers ever lived. Like, all I can do is just be like, look, look at that star, man. That's, that's the glory. Like, that's, that's the best he's got. That's the best we've got. And even that's not very good. You see, we think we know. 
We think we can grasp. We think we can some way, shape, or form comprehend, right? We've learned about the stars. We've learned about the moon. You went to school, learned about our solar system, nine planets around the sun, except then they're like, well, maybe not Pluto. Okay, yes. Okay, no. Poor Pluto. You know, in recent years, astronomers have discovered two more planets the size of Earth in our solar system. That's like our backyard. It's like, oh, there's, a, there's another planet there. There's, there's, a, there's a planet in our back. Like, how is there, well, where did that come from? We don't even know what's in our backyard. We don't even know. And then we gaze up at the, at the Milky Way, our, our, our galaxy, like our little home here, our neighborhood, if you will, right? And we gaze up at the Milky Way. And, you know, we've discovered over 500 other solar systems, like ours, in our galaxy. That's, a, that's impressive. Good job. Science. Science is awesome. You know, they estimate that there's tens of billions, upwards of 100 billion solar systems in our galaxy. 500 that we know of, upwards of 100 billion that we don't understand, that we haven't seen yet. And that's just, that's just our little galaxy. In the universe, in this seen universe, right? We can't see it all. We haven't, we, haven't, we haven't been able to see that far yet. But in the seen universe, there's 100 billion galaxies filled with tens of billions of solar systems, filled with dozens of planets. We know nothing of the glory of God. We know nothing of it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we strain, we do not come close. Some of us in this room, many of us in this room, are weary and tired and exhausted of chasing and pursuing lesser glories. We come up short, we feel less than, we feel small and insignificant compared to those who can prop up greater glory for themselves. So we work harder to prop up our own glory, always constantly falling short of the glory of God, always buying into the lie that you can become like Him. You can be glorious. Next week here at Flourishing Grace, we're starting a new series on heaven. I'm really excited about that. We're going to be unpacking kind of the, the glory of heaven over the next few weeks. When somebody, goes, when somebody dies, when a follower of Jesus dies, right, we say they've gone on to... Glory. Where do we get that? That language, that idea. They've, they've gone to glory. Let me show you. Everything that we've been talking about is built to this point, this, this moment. The fourth thing that I want to communicate is finally this. He, Jesus, came, died, and rose so that you could see his glory once again, he tells us in John 17, in John 17, kind of the, at the, during the Passover meal, kind of the night uh, before Jesus is betrayed, he is sitting there uh, with his disciples at the Passover meal, and he prays what's known as his high priestly prayer, this long, beautiful, poetic prayer, kind, kind of, the, kind of the, the last request, right, when somebody's going to be executed, what are their last requests? And so he goes to the Father, and he prays this prayer of desperation. If you could just give me one thing, just one last thing, if you could just hear me out one more time before I go to the cross, before I die, one last thing. And here's what he says in verse 24. 
He says, Father, I desire, this is my hope, this is my, this is my want, this is my request. I desire that they also, whom you've given me, that's you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. One thing I want, one thing I ask, that those whom you've given me, every follower of Jesus who's ever lived, which he clarifies in the earlier verses, every follower of Jesus who has ever lived, who has ever come to Jesus and said, I am desperate for you. My glory is nothing compared to yours. I lay it down. I surrender my life that you might pick it back up again. I belong to you. He says, what I want for them, I want them to see my glory. It's like a little kid on show and tell. It's like, Dad, Dad, can I bring my friends home from school and so they can see this thing that you give me, the greatest thing that I have, my greatest possession. I want them to see my glory. I want those who I love to see my glory. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross to wash away every sin, every, every glory-chasing sin that you've ever pursued. And when he rises from the grave, he says, come on, let me show you what real glory actually is. This is what he has for us who are in Christ. Complete and total satisfaction. Complete and total joy in him. He is the vision. He is the image of God. He is the image of the glory of God. In him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell For all eternity, he wants you to be satisfied in him, to find full joy in him, to die in weariness, and to rise with him in complete fulfillment and satisfaction. Friends, this is my call you this morning. This is what I want for you this morning. This is what Christ wants for you this morning. And the only way you attain it, the only way you ever taste and see the glory of Jesus is by coming to him now, in this hour, in this moment, giving your life to him and saying, saying, to you be the glory forevermore, not to me. His glory is worth it. His glory is worth far more than any glory you'll ever find. His glory is worth far more. Anything you'll ever find or buy or acquire, it's worth far more than any glory that you'll ever prop up to display. Stop pursuing lesser glories and pursue Christ alone. Come to him, know him, develop a flourishing relationship with him now. Taste and see his glory so that you might experience it in its fullness forevermore. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and I pray, my hope is that as we gather, as your church gathers, as our friends and our family gathers, that we come to the end of ourselves, as we ponder the wonders of your glory, that at some point our brains would just shut off and say, I can't, I can't go there, I can't, I can't grasp any more than that. And at the end of ourselves, we'd see there's so much more of you.
that we'd stop trying to be perceived in a certain way, but we'd prop you up instead. That rather than taking pictures of our fancy stuff, which is worthless before your glory, or our awesome things and experiences, that we'd take pictures of the, of the works of your mighty hand and say, man, someday I'm going to see so much more than that. I'm going to see the glory that I was created for, the glory that will fully satisfy and fully delight every part of my soul. And that's where I'll find my rest, not in the things of this world, not in these lesser trinkets. Help us to live every day of our lives magnifying you and seeing you more clearly. Show us your beauty. Captivate us with your wonder. Draw us near to yourself that we might have a flourishing relationship with you. I pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.